Hi folks, Jack Spirico here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial free versions of past episodes, podcasts, blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today, folks, we are rewinding back to March the 27th, 2018, and that will be the oldest rewind during my uh, absence while I uh, travel out to Florida for some fall fishing and some time with my wife. This series of rewinds are all going to be based on skill sets, right? So every episode you'll hear until I get back will be based on a skill set. Today's skill set that we're going over is cooking. And every time you hear one of these rewinds, if you think, I want to know more about that skill set, remember, since we've done almost 3,000 episodes now, not counting the rewinds, we've done almost 3,000 episodes, um, there's probably more on that skill set. Certainly, if you go to the, the survivalpodcast.com and uh, search the search function for cooking, you'll find tons of information. This one was called Jack's Cooking Hacks and Cheat Codes. And this is before I really dug into doing keto and certainly uh, at a time where I was still using a lot of things in my cooking that maybe uh, I don't even eat anymore. Like there's there's one hack in here on how to uh, to cook rice. Um, however, I, I'm not the person that goes back and redoes shows like this and takes out things because I've changed my mind. And I understand that keto is a choice. Uh, eating a keto car carnivore diet, I think, is the healthiest way for humans to live. But many of you don't, and you're not going to. It's okay. So um, there's stuff here for everybody. There's a lot that is meat-centric as well. Um, but I, I really, whenever I talk about cooking, I try to reiterate, though, how much of a life skill this really is and how much of a life skill it is that is now in short supply in the country. One of my favorite YouTube channels used to be called Brother Green Eats. It's now called Pro Home Cooks. Uh, those guys blew up to a point where they were actually on, like, guys' grocery games and uh, chop, like, major network uh, TV shows. That's how big they got. They have well over a million subscribers. The one brother wants to do other things. He left, hence it went from Brothers Green Eats to Pro Home Cooks. The other brother was like, I'm not going to stop doing this. I'm going to keep doing it. But do you know what blew them up? When they did a whole series on how to cook great food for almost no money, like they did a series where I think they started out like they got to live on $20 a day. And what could you cook for $20 a day? And then it went to like $10. And then it went to like $5 a day. And I think they even went down from there. They did one that was like $15 for a week. And they got very, very creative, but yet they still were able to elevate their cooking. And they exploded. And who did they explode with? Millennials, specifically younger millennials, who had not yet established themselves. Maybe they're still in college, they still have their first job, whatever. They haven't really begun to make bank yet. And why would those people want that information so badly? And I think what people would initially say is, well, they're broke. So eating good on the cheap, like, of course they want to know how to do that. Yeah, 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 but really eating good on the cheap is knowing how to cook. That's, that's what it really comes down to. Can you cook? And the, and the reality is most of that generation can't cook. Most of that generation, their experience in the kitchen was their mother telling them, or their father or somebody else telling them to get out, uh, going out to eat, maybe making toast 
waffles in a toaster, Pop-Tarts in a toaster, pancakes in a toaster, uh, and microwaving things in a box or a package. Most of them never picked up a knife and diced a carrot or an onion, let alone knew that if you took carrot, onion, and celery and put it together, you had the base of a soup or a stew called a mirepoix. No idea. No idea. If you handed them a can of chipotle peppers, they'd have no idea what to do with them. You're going to hear what to do with them today. If you said, look, here's some smoked salt, they'd be like, why would I want my salt smoked? Am I going to get high on it or what? They really, And I'm not picking on them. They just didn't know. And, and this is not just, this is not a rant on losing the skill. It's a testimony to how important it is. That even a generation who's lost it, that wasn't told, hey, you lost this, guys, was like, wait a minute, now that I have to take care of myself, there's something that's missing in my life. And somebody can build a multi-million subscriber channel on it. Google Foods is another example, more of an elevated thing. But yeah, like this is a true life skill, and any life skill is a survival skill. And again, we are now launching on the skill set series of rewinds. Let me remind you that we don't do commercials during this, but you can always help support us. Um, or we don't do commercials during uh, rewinds, but I do kind of want to mention you can always help us out by doing your online shopping starting at tspaz.com. And in this episode in particular, there are a ton of things that I mentioned that are linked in the episode. So if I talk about something like smoked salt or curry paste or flour sack towels or a microplane grater or any of the stuff that's in this episode, uh, making zoodles, uh, resources on how to do that, how to salt age steaks. Like, there's a ton, and I mean just a butt ton of resources in today's show notes. Uh, with that, here we go, rewinding back to originally episode 2110, Jack's Cooking Hacks and Cheat Codes, uh, originally published on March the 27th, 2018. So, Pre-COVID days. And with that, let's go ahead and get into this. So I want to start out before I give you all this stuff today and talk to you a little bit about why I think this is an important subject, not just an interesting subject and a fun subject. Uh, I think we really need to go back to making cooking what we would consider an essential life skill in America. And if you think about an essential life skill, let's talk about one that I think everybody would agree is an essential life skill. Being able to tie your shoes, right? So if it's an essential life skill, then we make sure young people know how to do it, you know, at some point in their growing up before they become adults. Because can you imagine if your 21-year-old kid was at college and picked up the phone and said, hey, mom, hey, dad, um, I'm getting ready to leave the dorm, and I don't know how to tie my shoes. Can you come do it for me? See, it's a ridiculous thing, and I'm going to the ridiculous edge of things here, so that you know, I can make a point. And that point is that the average person in America today, especially the average young person, and when I say young, I mean like under 40, doesn't know shit from Shinola about how to cook. Now, I, I think it's really obvious why tying your own shoes would be an essential life skill. But don't you eat every day, like three times a day, or some of us eat twice a day? and have snacks and stuff like that, isn't an, an incredibly huge amount of your income spent to make sure that you can feed yourself. There, I can't remember who said it. There was a guy who said many, many years ago, a quote was something like, if we didn't have to eat, we would all be rich. 
I don't know if that's true, but I think we'd all have a lot more money. If you look at, especially a family of three or four, mom, dad, and a couple kids, that grocery bill is one of the most significant expenses they have in their lives. And then we've got into a world where people have started to really appreciate food at a higher level, but since nobody knows how to cook, what does that mean? That means restaurants and dining out. Now, look, I'm all about that. I like to go to nice places and have somebody else cook for me and make amazing food. But, you know, we don't stretch our budget with that. We, we use the discretionary, you know, revenue to spend on something like that. But there are people that eat almost every meal out. Some really expensive places and some that eat almost, you know, all crap like Sonic and Burger King and whatever. Does anybody go to Burger King anymore? I don't know, but you, you see what I'm saying? This is something that you're going to have to cater to for your entire life. And we have, I would say, really two generations that aren't very good at it. Because I would say a lot of Gen X, not just millennials, doesn't know nothing about how to cook. And I think it's partially with my generation, Gen X, how many of us grew up at a time when mom still did all the cooking. So the males didn't get in the kitchen as much. Now, that wasn't true for me. And the main thing that got me in the kitchen is the adults in my family didn't want to cook fish and game. And I was out killing and catching, and I wanted to eat it, so I had to learn how to cook it. I also had a grandmother that could bake anything fantastic, but if you gave her a piece of meat, she ruined it. I had another grandmother that knew how to cook meat, so when that grandmother passed away and I was stuck with the grandmother that ruined things like roast beef, I had to learn how to cook for myself. I didn't want to eat food that was cooked until it was ready to be obliterated. So I had some, some, you know, some additional things kind of motivating me, but I know that most of my friends growing up saw cooking as something that women did. So I think we ended up with... Kind of this, this last generation with the typical concept of a homemaker and women were already in the workplace in the 80s and the 70s, but really it blew up with the females in Gen X. Hey, I'm not, I'm not married to the kitchen. And that, so they weren't really interested in learning how to cook. And then we ended up with this generation that didn't know how to cook, raising a generation that don't know nothing. And, and I think it's time that we kind of, go back and learn this stuff. And I think it's things like the cooking shows on TV, at least the ones that don't completely suck, and, and the modern Internet that has sort of rekindled this. But it's certainly something that a young person, that any person should be able to do. And, and it's great that we have the Internet and all, but if you're going to fry a couple eggs and your first step is to go to YouTube and go how to fry an egg, I'm sorry, but that's not the way things should be unless you're eight years old and you're trying to figure it out on your own. I mean, really, you should be able to fry an egg. You should, I mean, and, and people can't. So what I've realized is that one of the ways that you really get people switched on to this is to share great food with them, and then they think it's hard, and you say, this isn't hard. This is, anybody can do this. It's not hard. So with that in mind, let's talk about, you know, again, what a cheat code is real quick. To me, this is something that, If you add it to what you're cooking, it makes it taste so much better than you thought that it ever could have. Or that it's such a core component to your cooking that it allows you to start with a base that we can then do just about anything with. So kind of my first one is, and I have links to almost everything I'm going to talk about today in today's show notes. Uh, it's, it's pretty exhaustive. So my first one is actually, and I've talked about it before, is better than bullion uh, stock bases. 
And if you look at what Better Than Bullion is, and you talk to professional chefs like Keith Snow, they have very a very similar stock base that you can get in giant tubs from like restaurant supply stores, and, and professional chefs use that all the time. Now, Better Than Bullion, just put it in a jar and put it on the shelf in your supermarket, or you can order it from Amazon. And this allows you to have that, you know, that flavor that comes from a stock available at your fingertips in a little bitty jar, and it is better than bullion. And by bullion, they mean those little cubes, and those little cubes suck. All they really are is salt and artificial flavoring. I mean, if you read the ingredients, you'll see what I'm saying. Where we can take something like better than bullion, and we can make a stock that is awesome. And I'll tell you a secret. I make a lot of my own stocks. And I generally, if I'm making, let's say, a fairly large thing of chicken stock, I'll still put a teaspoon or so of better than bullion chicken stock in the stock because it adds that richness and depth that would take a lot longer to create if we were you know, making a true bone stock where we cook it down to where the bones just fall apart. I also just, you know, they have so many options. They have a fish stock. They have a lobster stock. They have a beef. They have a vegetable. And that gives you this incredible diversity that can be at your fingertips because we don't always have time to make a stock. And with things like the fish stock or the clam-based stock, right, then we can start making these seafood soups and stews and chatters that are fantastic. So an example of that that actually is something really, really simple to do But I think most people would be intimidated about it. How about a potato, corn, and clam chowder that's done in a thin style, more like, I guess, a, a, I think they, there's a Maryland style or a chowder or something like that. But we just, I mean, how you want simple. Get yourself some good quality corn, uh, whatever kind you want to use, and some potatoes. Dice your potatoes up small and make up a pot of clam base according to the directions on the, the thing from the Better Than Bullion. Dissolve it in your water. Okay, Get a can of just canned clams and dump that clam juice out of the can into the, into the uh, stock. Add your potatoes. Simmer your potatoes until they're soft. Add the corn and the clams and cook them until they're warm. You're done. Now, That sounds ridiculously... You don't need to do anything else. Now, what am I going to do? I'm going to take an, a green onion or two, sliced real thin on the bias, and some chives sliced and chopped up, and I'm going to sprinkle that on the top with a little bit of parsley, and maybe some really thin sliced red chili pepper, and it's going to look better. And it's going to add that additional layers of flavor to it. But honestly, you can just take that out of the pot, put it in a bowl, and eat it, and it'll blow you away. And it costs about the same per serving as going out and buying some crappy clam chowder in a, in a can that you just dump and stir. And it tastes a hell of a lot better. And, and it's all made from things that store well. So, I mean, that's a, just one example. And I can't, I mean, I can do a hundred things with that. Just kind of exposing you to the concept there. But whenever you're doing any kind of sautés or anything like that with vegetables and you want to make a sauce at the end of it, chicken stock is always just it's so simple. We make up a cup of chicken stock, we do our vegetable sauté, right at the end after those vegetables have been sautéed and got that color on them, we drop that, that, that chicken stock in there and reduce it a little bit and then serve it with our vegetables. Simple. Add some herbs to it. Done, right? Okay, the next one that I have for you today that I consider just an awesome cheat code is Maldon Salt. 
And Maldon salt I've covered before. This is salt that's done in these flakes that are like little salt chips. They're kind of shaped like a pyramid. And and I love all of the you know all the Maldon salt, but the one that I really like is the smoked Maldon salt. Holy crap! It, it, it adds a flavor as though now we've smoked something. So we take something like a beautiful steak, okay, and we're gonna make a compound butter. So we can make a compound butter like a compound garlic and chive butter. So we we mash up some garlic cloves, and we chop up some chives. And we just take some softened butter and we just mix that together. That's a compound butter. Woohoo! I mean, that's that's that simple. When that steak comes off the grill, and you know what would be really good in there too? Why not throw some parsley in there? Some of the curled parsley, chop that up real fine and put that in there with your chives and your garlic. So we put that in there, and that steak comes off the grill or out of the broiler or whatever. We let it rest, and while it's still nice and warm, we take a big tablespoon of that compound butter and set it up on top of that steak. And it starts to melt. And once it melts a little bit, we take the back of the spoon and we help it. We just pull it along the steak. So now the steak's sitting there with this amazing herbed compound butter on it. And now, instead of getting that nasty salt out of the salt shaker, this is like fine grain crap, we take a pinch out of our salt box of that, that smoked salt and we hit that steak with that smoked salt. You just change the entire nature of a steak, which was already great, but you've just taken it to steakhouse level, and all you do is put some daggone butter and salt on it, which everybody else does. They just don't do it that way. They don't use the right kind of salt. And now when we eat that, not only are we going to get the smoke from that salt, we're going to get the crunch from that salt. You're going to get these little explosions of salty, smoky, buttery, garlicky goodness with that beautiful steak. And if you cook steak well done, you are not my friend. I'm sorry. You can cook it medium if you really have to. Medium well, I start to get angry, but I'll let it go. You make a steak well done, you have sinned against steak. Just please remember that. That smoked salt, though, can go in anything. A little bit. If you have a soup, like a vegetable soup, and you hit it with that smoked salt, sometimes there's this smokiness in the background. I've done when you take some crackers, and you make some yogurt cheese we'll talk about later, or whatever kind you want, and you spread that yogurt cheese on there. Get some pistachios, you know, and crack them up so they're ground, so they're like crack. So like one pistachio half makes like two or three pieces. And then put that on top of that yogurt cheese and crackers. Then take some of the smoked salt and put some of that smoked salt on there and then just drizzle a little honey on it. Serve that as an appetizer or, you know, a welcome uh, food or something like that when people come in the door. It, it, oh, my God. No, it's, it's freaking cheese and crackers. But we've, we've added crunch with the salt and the nuts, and we've added smoke with the salt. Simple. Easy. Put it in your, put it in your pantry, and it's there. If you want smoke in something and it needs a little bit of salt, use this. It's a cheat code. Next up, canned chipotle uh, peppers. Now, I do have links to everything, like I said, in the show notes. And I have a link to an 8-pack on Amazon. If you're going to buy your canned chipotle peppers and adobo sauce on Amazon, buy the 8-pack or just don't. And even with the APEC, I think you'll probably be better off getting the stuff at the store. I've never ordered this on Amazon. I just want to show you the brand that I use. And all of them are pretty good, as long as it's a chipotle pepper in adobo in a can. Um, I get it at the store, I think, for about, like, they're like under two bucks. So you can kind of make your decision on that. But chipotle peppers are basically 
red jalapeno peppers that have been smoked and then dried. But when they're, when, and that's if you get whole chipotle peppers, they'll be dry, they'll be gray looking when you get them. But they're, they're cooked into this adobo sauce, which is made with tomatoes and some other stuff. And they're, you know, they're soft and they have the seeds with them. And they're basically a whole little jalapeno. And a can might have four or five or six of them, depending on the size of them. And so you go to the, the, the fancy taco place, and they make, like, let's say a fish taco. And they have, like, this, this slaw on there that's like a cabbage and broccoli slaw, for instance. And it's got a little bit of a vinegar thing going on that's kind of crisped it and softened it at the same time. It's very, very good. And you're eating it, and you realize there's just amazing chipotle mayo on it. And it said right on the menu, chipotle mayo. You're like, wow, chipotle mayo. Do you know how you make chipotle mayo? You take a chipotle pepper, you chop it up real fine, you mix it with mayo. That's it. Don't go buy the crap that's pre-mixed. It's not chipotle mayo. It's, it's got some powdered crap and food coloring in it. Make it yourself. It takes five seconds. They store really well even after you open them several weeks. So you don't need a lot of this stuff. So when you open a can... Just take out what you need and leave the rest in the can. Take a piece of aluminum foil, put it over the top of it, and put it back in the refrigerator. But put somewhere where you'll see it when you open the refrigerator so you don't forget about it. They do last a long time, but if you forget about one for, let's say, a couple months, you will make a science experiment that you don't want to see. So trust me, that's how that works. I occasionally make uh, science experiments of stuff that gets forgotten in the refrigerator. But there's so many more things you can do with this. So. I talked about doing Jamaican jerk-style ribs yesterday when I talked about that jerk seasoning that walk, walkers would. That's fantastic stuff, too, by the way. But check this out. So we did ribs a very similar way, except there was no uh, no need to really marinate them. I did, a quick, I did a quick brine with the ribs. I love to do brines. I'll talk about that later. But just a salt-sugar brine in the morning. In the evening, took the, the ribs out of the brine, dried them off, and... Put them in a pressure cooker with salt and pepper and a beer and pressure cook them like that. Now, I also always put some sauce on my ribs when I pressure cook them and then again. So then I made a sauce. And all this sauce was was this smoky apple barbecue sauce made by a company called Zeb's. They're a little store up in North Conway, New Hampshire. Uh, but whatever your favorite barbecue sauce would be. And I did about a you know, 25% chipotle pepper to about 75% barbecue sauce. Mix that up with a splash of bourbon, about an ounce of bourbon in there. And th so then you, you cover the ribs with that. You throw them in the uh, pressure cooker and pressure cook them for about 40 to 55 minutes, depending on how big they are and how tender you want. When they come out of there, you got all this stuff down in the bottom, all of the beer and everything like that. Take that out and reduce it, and then add it back to your reserved sauce that you've saved to baste your ribs with. But keep it thick enough that it, it acts like a sauce, not just like a baste. And then finish those ribs on the grill or in the oven. And the oven's actually a great way to go with this, because what you do is you set the oven to a high temperature, like 425. You set your ribs up, you get them basted on the top, and you just put them in there until you look at that, that, that basted sauce, And it's starting to kind of dry out a little bit and maybe crisp a little around the edges. Kick the broiler on, keep a close eye on it, pull it. That'll blow you away. All you did was mix barbecue sauce with chipotle canned peppers. Get some of that adobo stuff out of there when you're doing it too. It's that simple.
And it, 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 you, so you serve somebody this, and they're like, oh, my God, and they think you work for hours smoking them or something because it's got the smoke flavor carried over. And guess what we do if we want to enhance that a little more? Well, you know, maybe we back off on our salt while we're cooking, so we leave some room for some salt, and we hit those ribs. What we do is we cut those ribs. So once they've been basted with that sauce, we cut those ribs to individual portions. We lay them on their side. We take our brush. We go back to that reserved sauce, and we add a little sauce to the edge. And then on the top and that edge that we've sauced, we hit a little sprinkle of the smoked salt. Now, you've got these different depths of flavor, but honestly, that takes about an hour and a half from the time you start till you finish, unless you include the time of brining. But it only takes about five to ten minutes of work. The pressure cooker does all the work. The oven does all the work. You just mix some shit together and baste it on there. Cooking cheat code. Lots of stuff you can do with chipotle peppers and adobo. Again, I can't go into everything. With I'd probably do a whole damn show on that one alone. How about this? Ground dehydrated celery. This is a hack I've been using for a long time. A lot of my, my rubs and my spice blends and things like that, I want that celery flavor in them. I do a rub for wings that I have celery in. People either use celery salt or celery seed. If you want really upfront celery flavor, use celery. So you just take some dehydrated celery and throw it in a coffee grinder and buzz it up. And you've got that celery flavor. And that can go into and be part of anything. Um, I've actually done a celery soup. Crazy as that sounds, it was really good. And I used a chicken stock base and a whole bunch of celery, including the leaves, and then some celery powder that kind of brought that, that up front. It was a very slight, you know, small portion that would be like, a, a, you know, something you eat as an appetizer before dinner. And that actually, that stuff actually tasted pretty good chilled. I don't really like chilled soups, like spatchos and stuff much, but that one was all, all right. My buddy David just made some of the best freaking Bloody Marys I've ever had in my life recently when we did the first episode of Bill Tom for breakfast. And, you know, you take a Bloody Mary and you do a salt on the rim. Well, instead of using celery salt, he took my spice grinder, ground up some dried celery, and mixed it with salt and did a celery salt for a Bloody Mary. It was fantastic. Dehydrated celery is just, there's so many things you can do with it. I have a link to a place called Harmony House. That's where I get most of my dehydrated vegetables, and I buy them in bulk and put them in ball jars and what have you. Dehydrated celery is just fantastic. Um, great for your soup bases and things like that. You know, frankly, dehydrated onions, dehydrated carrots, and dehydrated celery, and you've got a mirepaw. That is instant and always available in stores for like 20 years. Just saying. Don't make your own mirepaws in advance. Though. You don't, you'll use it that way. It's easy enough to throw, you know, a cup of each into a, a pot and rehydrate it, and then saute it down as a mirepoix for a base, which, uh, if you don't know, a mirepoix is a French base for cooking, which is uh, celery, carrot, and onion. And then there's the trinity, which is green peppers um, and onion. Uh, it, so we replace, I'm sorry, uh, we replace the, the uh, sorry, I got tongue-tied there, it's celery, onions and peppers. So we omit the carrots and replace them with green peppers or green and red peppers, depending on who you ask. Uh, and again, by storing those things dehydrated, we have both of those bases available. But the celery has that distinctive flavor. And if you want celery flavor in something, I find that you get a lot more celery flavor out of either cutting celery from the garden 
or out of celery that we, we have that's dehydrated. It's much more pungent flavor of celery. Next one is curry paste. Um, now, curry paste is one of those ones. I don't have a whole bunch of things that aren't curry to use curry paste for. But I do have one that I'll talk about when I get to the hacks. But if you want to make good curries, and if you're going to start with raw ingredients and, and make a curry, you can. But it's a lot of work, and a good, sophisticated curry has an awful lot of different levels of flavor in it and different layers of flavor in it. And the problem with that is some of that stuff is things that you won't use a lot of, but you got to buy enough of it to have enough of it to do it. And it just kind of makes it a pain in the ass sometimes when you want, you know, do I have gallon galangal around? Do I have a bit of turmeric root and, and, you know, ginger refresh? And you might have any one of those, but you have all of them at the same time. And I think one of the other things with curries is there are people like, I hate curry. My wife's always like, I hate curry. I'm like, well, I've made you curries. So you didn't know there were curries and you ate them. Um, Most people, I think, that don't like curry are not a fan of the yellow Indian-style curries that are very heavy in turmeric and cumin, and they have this kind of, I don't know, I like it, but uh, I've heard people say it's like an Indian's diaper taste or something. I, I don't know why they say that, but that's how they feel about it. But it's that very distinctive Indian uh, yellow curry. Well, there's red curries, and there's green curries, and there's actually yellow curries that don't go that far. We, another one that's not in today's list, but I've covered recently, is a seasoning called Ras, ras Al-Hunut. Um, that is sort of kind of like a curry powder, but it doesn't go that far. So there's curry is like saying, in America, like saying chili, right? I mean, there's a basic way that we make a chili, But if you ask 20 people who are proud of their chili how to make chili, you're going to get 20 different answers of exactly what goes in it and the ratios and all. Um, maybe it's even more like saying hot sauce, right? Or more like saying beer. Like if you go to Thailand, every person has their own curries that they make in their own home. It's basically a spicy herb mix. So if you don't like curry, you probably haven't tried it enough different ways yet. But, I mean, the green curries make really excellent, uh, like a curried fish soup, curried seafood soups. And those are simple. It's a little bit of coconut milk out of a can and the curry powder, and then use a fish base, like let's say from Better Than Bullion, and boom, you're with curry. Uh, and I got some other stuff we can do with this, uh, with curries, but uh, we'll save it for the hacks portion. But my feeling is that... As good as some of the curry pastes are that are available today, it's too simple to make these awesome curry dishes than to go through all of the headaches to make it. So to me, it's like a cheat code because it's just there, and it's got so much flavor. And if it's too hot, use less of it. If it's not hot enough, use more of it. Remember, though, we can always add heat, but once you put it in, it's almost impossible to take it away. So uh, consider that as well. My may ploy is the brand of curry paste that I like the best. And again, I got a link in the show notes for you today. The next one is, I don't have a link for because you have to kind of grow these yourself, really. But microgreens. Microgreens, to me, are a huge cheat code because they look elegant. That's why chefs use them. And the right ones bring an incredible depth of flavor. And the two easiest ones to grow are sunflowers and daikon radish. There's some that I think really have incredible flavor, but they're a little bit more challenging to grow, like arugula. 
you have a lot of dampening off problems with arugula and all. You kind of got to get everything really right. But daikon and sunflower, man, you can just grow that stuff in you know, a matter of days you've got a crop. And I think one of the things that people don't realize about microgreens is it can be a layer of flavor and texture. They're more accustomed to, oh, here's this big plate of food, and there's this little squiggly pea tendril, and, this, and maybe it is a flavor, but I don't really pay attention to it. It's like, it's like in the 70s, there was always a piece of parsley on the plate, and, and now chefs use microgreens. I think it's how some people feel. But, I mean, if you do a mix of daikon and sunflower, and use that on a burger, that's fantastic. And the hotter the daikon, the better that is, even if you're a person that generally doesn't like radish, because it, it's different when you're eating the green than the radish itself. And it really adds this great spiciness to a burger. If you can do arugula, arugula and daikon and sunflower is fantastic. Simple things, though, like I do an acorn squash soup, and that's made with acorn squash, chicken broth, and you can guess how we make that, apples and onions, and a few other things. And we won't really go into that one today. Um, that'll actually be in a future episode of Built On for Breakfast. I promise you, we'll be doing some acorn squash. We do that acorn squash soup, and then just take a handful of sunflower sprouts and put that on the top. And it almost kind of adds like a noodle layer to the texture, but it's got this freshness of the sprouts. And so you think about that, that's a really good winter-fall Uh, meal, an acorn squash and apple soup, because it's the time of the year that we generally eat more soups. It's warming, it's nourishing, it's it's comfort food. But then we, you know, we so said we can grow those microgreens on a shelf. And if you're not doing it commercially, if you're doing it for yourself, I mean, one set of one one TA grow light fixture and one shelf, and you can grow all the microgreens you'll ever want to eat. And you can grow enough to feed your birds and too if you keep birds. But we take that fresh spring-like component and we bring it to our fall dish by just adding them. And so microgreens to me are like a cooking cheat code because they're so easy to grow and they can add so much flavor, complexity, and a certain amount of elegance to a presentation as well. Uh, next up, yogurt cheese. And I have a link to flour sack towels with an article on how to make yogurt cheese. But the, the basic way that we make yogurt cheese is we take yogurt, and if we can get it, we want whole milk yogurt. Low-fat yogurt is not actual yogurt, and no-fat yogurt is an, obs an obscenity in the world of food. So the best thing we could look for when we're making yogurt cheese is a whole milk yogurt. Now, to get the best results, you would, you would ideally look to find a whole milk yogurt that is made with milk and bacterial cultures and nothing else. What I've found, though, is a lot of whole milk yogurts now, since they know why people are buying them, they add pectin to them. And if it's just pectin, if there's no sugars, if there's no artificial flavors, no vanilla, no, it's plain, and it, the only additional ingredient is pectin, it will work. I would prefer not to have it if possible. Because I think it seems like you get a better drain if the pectin's not there to hold on to some of this. And the simple way you make it is you put it in a flour sack, taller cheesecloth, put it in a colander over a pot or a sink or something like that, and fold the flour sock towel closed on it and let it sit overnight, 12 to 24 hours, depending on how tangy you want it to be. And the, the, the whey will leach out of it, and you have yogurt cheese. 
That's kind of boring, though. Some of my favorite things to make yogurt cheese with. How about jalapenos? Jalapeno and garlic is very, very good. We dice up a whole bunch of jalapenos, seed in, seed out, part seed in, part seed out, depending on how spicy you want it to be. A few cloves of garlic and salt and pepper, and we mix that in the yogurt before we let it rest. So it's nice and soft, and it's easy to mix and get a uniform mix in there. And then we then we go ahead and, and, and do that. And I use a pretty big pinch to a yogurt container, you know, a full-size yogurt container gets a quart. And this is what I do. When I'm going to make yogurt cheese, I know that it, when it's done, i got to have a container to put it in. So I take the container the yogurt came in, and I rinse it out, and I set it on the sink. And the next day when the yogurt cheese is ready, I dump it in there, and it takes up about half the volume because of all the moisture that came out of it. And then it's a, it's a food-grade container. It came in it. It says yogurt on it. We know what's in there. And then we have our yogurt cheese. Now, <laughs> the trick to this, to really get a good drain, is put a weight on it. This could be a heavy pot, a big-ass jar of uh, tomato sauce or something like that. Any kind of a weight on top of it acting like a cheese press will force more of the whey out. Recently, I found what works perfectly for me. I have this colander. It sits in a pot, and I collect that whey, and I drink some of it. I'll give some to the dogs. It's incredibly nourishing. It's got a huge amount of probiotics in it, but I have this molcajete, which is a big, heavy stone mortar and pestle. It weighs a lot. You just set that up on top of there, and you get a, and it fits almost perfectly inside the colander. You get a great press out of your cheese. Now, how do we use this stuff? Well, I told you one already. You do the crackers and the pistachios, and we do a drizzle of honey and the smoked salt. And you get a little bit of sweetness. You get the tanginess. And you could do, again, like, so the jalapeno garlic is really good that way. But another thing you can do is basil. Basil and garlic is the one that no one has ever tried it and said, I didn't like that. It, it's fantastic. My buddy David did some one year where he took dehydrated vegetables, put them through the spice grinder, made a vegetable powder, and mixed it in. That was fantastic. There was, I don't remember what was in there, but I know there was peppers and tomatoes in it. And that was, it was like garden vegetable cheese. So any kind of herb combination that you think will work, give it a try, see if it'll work. But I'll tell you a thing you can do. You know, you like jalapeno poppers, but you don't like the heat? Well, get those little bitty sweet peppers that are about the size of a jalapeno. And because they're not going to blow your face off if you cook them whole, you can just chop the top off and stuff them with this stuff. Or cut, the sl cut a slit in the side and stuff them. Wrap them with bacon and grill those. Now what if you want a little bit of jalapeno heat? Use the jalapeno cheese in the sweet pepper and make a sweet pepper popper with jalapeno and cheese. Now you got a jalapeno popper-ish thing that kids or people with a soft palate as far as heat can eat. That's another way you can use it. It's, it's known as lebna in some, some countries, uh, but it's a very, very standard dish throughout the world where yogurt is made in the home. Because what it does is, so we, when we make yogurt out of milk, the milk stores longer without you know heavy refrigeration or what have you. And when we make lebna out of the yogurt, it stores even longer than the yogurt does. So it, it starts out mainly as a way to preserve things. But the other thing that happens is when we make milk into yogurt, we reduce the carbohydrate because the bacteria feed on the carbohydrate. Well, when we make yogurt into yogurt cheese or lebna, that process is accelerated and done more so. So there's actually a very low carbohydrate load in, in lebna yogurt cheese, so it's very, very paleo-friendly. 
And you can do so many things with it. I'll let you, you know, figure it out for yourself from there. But a lot of people do this, again, with the um, cheesecloth. I stumbled on the flour sack towels uh, a few years ago when I was making some, and I will never use uh, cheesecloth to make it again. It's kind of a one-use thing. It doesn't clean out well. Flour sack towels are sturdy enough that you just th we just throw them in the washing machine on the small cycle by themselves with no detergent whatsoever. They come out perfect, fold them up, put them away, and they're available to use again and again and again and again. Uh, so one pack of them will last you for damn near ever. The next cheat code is citrus zest. I see so many people making things that call for lemon juice, lime juice, orange juice, and they get that fruit and they cut it in half and they squeeze that juice in there. I'm like, do you know that most of the real flavor is in the oils that are bound up in the zest? If you're not familiar with the term zest, zest is the... If it's a lemon, it's the yellow part of the peel. If it's the lime, it's the green part. It's a very, very thin layer. And you want to use a thing called a microplane grater or microplane zester. And I have a link to where you can get one in the show notes. And what you do is you use that to take that zest off. And it's one stroke per spot. When you can see white, you stop taking it. Because the white, is the pith, is bitter. So we take all that zest and we use it in a variety of ways. Um, adult beverages. Uh, you do uh, like a, a lemon drop uh, martini or a limeade or something, martini. A little bit of that zest on the rim of the glass or in the, uh, in the drink itself is fantastic. That, that's just one way. I use it whenever I cook anything. That, like if I'm doing something, we're going toward the Asian side and the lime's going in it, the zest gets added. And a lot of times what I'll do with zest is I'll take half of it and go ahead and use it early on, and I'll use the other half of it toward the end of the cook so it's still up front. We don't cook all the oils out. Definitely use it on chicken. That's for dadgone sure. Lemon chicken is you know as old as the world, I think. As long, it's as old as the chicken. Well, I don't know who came first, the chicken or the egg, but when the chicken came out of the egg and somebody cooked it, they put lemon on it. And there's a good reason for it. It just works well together. Um, so citrus zest, and that's, again, something people generally throw away. Um, one of my favorite uses for citrus zest is limoncello. A limoncello is we just zest the lemon, we soak it in high-proof vodka, we mix it with some sugar syrup. You can look up the ratios to do this. I try to make mine higher proof than the average. And then we, you know, that's pretty much it. We soak the lemon zest in the vodka for like a week. We strain that out and add a sugar syrup, simple syrup, back to it to sweeten it and thicken it. And then we put that in the freezer. And a shot of that is a hell of a dessert. I mean, it's, and, and it's, it's so, Ellie, and it's so expensive. Go to the liquor store and look at what a fifth of limoncello costs. And you can make it with, with something that most people end up throwing away. If you want to make lemonade all the time, squeeze the lemons and throw them away and never zest them. Even if you're not going to use citrus zest right away, zest any citrus fruit that you're going to use for any other purpose, lay it out on a paper plate on a single layer and let it dry. You can also put it in your Excalibur dehydrator if you want to. Uh, just you need to, no, no, don't try to put it on the tray. It'll all fall through. You can set um, you know, a plate in there with it on it and, and dehydrate it. And then you can save that in jars. I don't do that a lot because I can always find something to do with it. But it's just go look at the price of buying 
dried lemon zest or dried lime zest. It's expensive. And most of it is a lie. It's not zest. Most of the dry products you buy are the entire peel, which includes the bitter pith that you don't want, citrus zest. Next up, chili garlic oil. Man, I can make some hella good ribs. I'm, I'm sorry, hella good. My ribs would be good too. But hella good chicken wings using the chili garlic oil. And I have a link with the exact you know ratios and ingredients of what to make. But I use a, a red Thai chili pepper that comes straight from Thailand. And it's cheap. And I don't know how the hell they do it because you order it from Amazon. You have it within two or three days. And it's got a freaking customs label stamped on the, on the bag. Like it came from Thailand when you ordered it. And these things are fantastic. They're dried. And the basic procedure to make the oil is you use garlic. And like a whole head of garlic, just cut it in half so that it can get its flavor out. Throw it in there. Um, and then you use black pepper, and I like to crack it a little bit to let a little bit more of the flavor out, and some of these chili peppers. We put that in a, a pot full of oil, and we bring that oil's temperature up very slowly. We watch it. You can measure it if you want to. Whatever. All I do is I just watch it. I go on a low temperature, maybe a little bit of an increase if it's not getting there fast enough, but it might take 10, 15 minutes to get it up to temperature where you look and you see one of those peppers or a piece of that garlic or what have you, and it just looks like it's about to start to fry. You see the first bubbles of frying begin to form. So now we know we're probably somewhere in the neighborhood of about 225 to 250 degrees at that point. So what we're going to do, we kill the heat, put a lid on the pot, wrap it up in a towel and set it aside and let it sit all day. And then we strain it off. We now have a chili garlic pepper infused oil. And my favorite use of this is just rub chicken wings with it. And I'll talk about the hack, how I do chicken wings, and make up whatever dry uh, rub you want to go with them. Chili powder, paprika, garlic, salt, black pepper, not a bad way to go there, by the way. Coat them in the chili oil. Put them in a bowl. And drizzle that chili oil on them and mix them around so they get completely coated with that chili oil. And then, I'll save the hack for how to do chicken wings later, but set them where you're going to cook them and hit them with that dry. Flip them over, hit them with the dry again, and roast them at 425 degrees until they're done. And, oh, yeah, the flavor that that brings. And you can use that chili garlic oil anywhere you want to bring extra flavor. That stuff's good just with some bread and just bread dipped in it. Uh, it's good any kind of Asian soup oil in replacement of, let's say, a hot sauce. You just drizzle a little bit of that, like on a, on a faux. And because it's an oil, it stays at the top of the soup, and it kind of comes to the front when you take those first spoonfuls of it. It's good on vegetables. Sauté, just sauté. You take broccoli, boring broccoli, and do a stir, like a wok-fried broccoli with chili garlic oil, salt and pepper, nothing else. It's all you need. And it, it, it's a totally different experience than steamed broccoli, which is like the most boring food on planet Earth. And it's the same vegetable. It's got the same value as far as nutrition to it, probably more. Because if you steam or boil broccoli, you're inevitably going to overcook it to make it edible. right? When you, when you, when you saute or you wok fry a broccoli, you, you tend to want to leave it more crunchy. At least I do. And you want to get enough heat and you get a little bit of black on it, a little bit of blackening on the edges, a little bit of that, that roasted flavor. And that chili garlic oil, and you 
use a couple tablespoons to, salt, to, to fry it, and when it comes out, drizzle a little bit over the top of it right before you serve it. Simple. And a million different things you can do with it. Next one, sumac powder. And I have a link to this brand that I found I think is the best you can get. Now, sumac uh, is an incredibly used seasoning, spice, call it whatever you want to, herb, uh, in the Middle East and throughout a lot of, the, lot of Europe, uh, North Africa, going into Asia, that, that east way. Uh, it's used in a lot of different ways. And it is similar to but not the same as the sumac we have here in the United States, which also can be used culinarily as well. A lot of people think sumac is poisonous. These people don't know what poisonous is. There is a poison sumac. It looks absolutely nothing like the sumac that you can use for food. Sumac that you can use for food is either smooth or staghorn sumac in the United States. The flowers are red and they go up like a cone that points up, and poison sumac, the berries are white, and they go down. I mean, you really have to try to get it wrong, uh, and I don't think you would eat it very much anyway. And you'd end up awful itchy like you had poison ivy if you went the wrong way. The sumac from Europe and, and Africa and the Middle East is a bit different, but very kind of similar in a way to our sumac in, in a flavor profile. It's a lemony, citrusy wonderful flavor and it has this red color to it that you might imagine that brightens up dishes and things like that. The, the, the like the way we did it the first time that we were like, man, this stuff's great. We took carrots, we cut them into about the size of french fries. We rubbed them with some olive oil, we sprinkled them with sumac and salt and pepper. We did them in a convection roast oven at 425 until they were starting to roast to the point where they were getting a little bit crunchy on the outside, but a carrot's only going to get so crunchy. We did like carrot fries like that. Holy crap. I think Dorothy and I fought over like the last three of them. And anything that will benefit from that red color and that citrus character, this stuff will work with. It brings that tartness, that acidity, without maybe using something like a lemon juice or a lime juice. How about fish? You take filet, a fish filet, And you hit it with salt, pepper, and this stuff, and grill it. That's it. And it's this whole additional, and it's lemon-like, but it's not lemon. Um, in, the, in here, with our sumac in the U.S., if I'm cooking whole fed-on head-on fish where you just gutted them, a lot of times if there's sumac available, I'll get a couple sprigs of sumac and dill and stick it inside the fish. And then just cook it whole, and that, let that flavor come from the inside and permeate through the flesh so it's kind of a mild rather than rubbed on. But you could just take sumac powder from, from you know the stuff you can buy and, and put it inside fish. It, it's fantastic. Scallops. You take scallops, you do a seared scallop, and then sprinkle them with sumac and salt and pepper at the end. It will probably burn a bit on you if you try to put it on first and cook with it. And that's because you're going to go real high heat, so add it at the end. Seared scallops don't need a lot of help, but the help they get from this stuff is pretty daggone awesome. The next one is saffron. Saffron has the distinction of being the most expensive spice in the world, or herb or seasoning, depending on how you want to call it. And it is sold, therefore, by the gram. There are drugs that cost less than good saffron. There's a reason. It's worth it. It creates an orange-reddish color that is very intense and has an incredible flavor. 
Um, if you ever want to make the Portuguese dish paella, use bomba rice and use saffron. And if you don't have those two things, it's not real paella. And it's that saffron that gets taken up in the rice and then it gets crunchy on the bottom of the paella pan. That makes it so freaking fantastic. But we can use saffron for a lot of things. I talked about my acorn squash soup. I take a few little sprigs of saffron and I put that in my, in my acorn squash soup. It adds a wonderful flavor. And you'd be surprised how much flavor saffron, a little bit of saffron adds. It's part of why it's so expensive because you don't need as much of it. And it's, it's, it's from the uh, a flower called a crocus flower. And it's the, it's the stamens from inside a flower. That gives you an idea why it's so expensive, like little hairs. But the other thing it does with that acorn squash soup, it's really good. But it's kind of gray. It kind of has a gray color to it. And I don't know about you, but gray food, not what I'm looking for. Even food that's on the gray scale, if it's gray, it's not right, like a steak. Steak's kind of gray-ish. But if it's gray with no char and no marks and no, no crust, it's, uh, ugh, right? If you look at a piece of meat that hasn't been cooked yet and it starts to turn gray, not appetizing. Gray does not make people salivate. Gray does, so when you give somebody a gray soup, and it's not completely gray, but it's kind of gray scale. It just, yeah. Now you hit it with that saffron, it brings that more, it brings it to more of the color of like a butternut squash soup. Now it looks like butternut squash soup, but it doesn't taste like butternut. What is this? And it's got this complex. That's the saffron. So saffron to me can do so many things. We can flavor and color rice with it. We can flavor and color grain like amaranth with it. It's just fantastic. And yes, it's expensive. So what I say is it's all expensive. So buy the very best. And the stuff that I have is a Persian, um, a Persian uh, saffron, and it is the best that you can get and it only costs a tiny bit more than the cheap ass stuff from McCormick so you get a lot better for a very little difference and if you buy larger amounts of it actually costs less because a little tiny thing of I think it's a gram so you get this you know the McCormick stuff that's in the grocery store you get this big giant bottle and it's like $22 seriously and you open it up there's a little envelope in there and inside that envelope is like this tiny amount of saffron Or there's a little, sometimes I think they went to a tube now. They have like a little plastic tube in there. So check this stuff out. It comes in a can that kind of looks like a snuff can. And it is the best saffron you will ever find. Next up, dehydrated onions. I talked about the celery earlier. Dehydrated onions are fantastic. One of the things I do with dehydrated onions, I want to keep carbohydrates down. But if you're making something like um, meatballs, you need some, something in there as a binder. And you usually use egg and maybe a little milk. And you want something in there as a binder. And if we're adding flavors, like we talked about using the jerk seasoning yesterday, what we can do is we can cut back the breadcrumbs by, let's say, half, and then use about um, a half of that half in dehydrated onions. And it brings all that onion flavor to the party. But what, the, what it does is, since it's a dehydrated onion, it's a very mild onion flavor, and what does something that's dehydrated do? When you put it in a, a place where there's a liquid, it hydrates itself. So we can pull in some of that moisture and hold in some of that moisture that would otherwise be done with a breadcrumb with an onion. The other thing is, I don't believe in creating artificial redundancy. So artificial redundancy is I have dehydrated onions and I have onion powder. Why? 
the onion powder begins to degrade in quality the minute it's made because it has a lot more surface area exposed to oxygen. So when I need onion powder, I just take some dehydrated onions, throw them in the Mr. Coffee Spice Grinder, which is really a coffee grinder. Bing! Onion powder. How about onion jalapeno powder? Onions, jalapenos, bing! You got onion jalapeno powder. It's easy. People are like, wow, that's got a lot of flavor. It's just two dehydrated things in a grinder. And that's why I call this stuff cheat codes, because it adds this level to what you're doing with, with almost no effort. So it's like cheating. Next, lemon pepper. You can make your own, but I have a really great brand by a company called Frontier Organics that I use. And lemon pepper to me does a lot of things. And, of course, chicken. And I do have a chicken recipe, and it is in the review of the lemon pepper product. It's fantastic. Uh, if you make thigh cutlets with that marinade, uh, it'll be hard for you to make chicken any other way unless you want it spicy in some way. Because it's so juicy and so amazing. And even though you're using lemon pepper in it, it's a small amount, and it doesn't taste like lemon chicken. It tastes like its own thing, and it's, it's, it's very, very good. Um, but, you know, one year we had a ton of quail eggs, and we were coming up on one of our workshops. So we ended up realizing, like, we got to get rid of these things. So we boiled them all. And, I mean, there was a couple hundred of them. So we let them age long enough to where they would peel easily, and we boiled them. And we put them out, and all we put out with them was lemon pepper. And I was like, no, no, they peel a little quail egg and all, because they sat for a while, they peeled easy enough. And then you dip the little quail egg, which has a little bit of residual moisture from being in the shell, and you dip it in the lemon pepper, and it's like pop, and it's gone. And you're like, whoa. So I, I, I ate a couple, and I left to go take care of something, and I come back, and there's just piles of eggshells, and they're all gone. And I think Nick Ferguson ate about 400 uh, himself of those daggone things. People went nuts for a hard-boiled quail egg because it had the lemon pepper on it. It just had this amazing way that it went with eggs. And so another way to use that, if you do a salad, quail eggs in a salad are great. They add an ambiance. They're cool-looking, whatever. You can leave them whole, or you can cut them in half and leave them open. Or you can do something like bantam chicken eggs. We've, we've been using a lot of those lately because we have bantam chickens. And they're, you know, they're, they're a little bit bigger than a quail, but they're smaller than a regular egg. Well, what you do when you put your, your eggs to however you do them on your salad, coat them with lemon pepper. Now you've got another layer of flavor. Now it's not just a boring egg. But you take the quail eggs and leave them whole and roll them in lemon pepper. And, and put them into a salad. Or do them in half and do the outside with lemon pepper. Right? And set them in the salad facing up where people don't really see that there's something on the egg until they eat it. And then there's this, this, again, the two go together in a flavor profile. It's just fantastic. And there's tons of other things that you can do with lemon pepper. And the next is what I call the Asian pastes, you know, that are out there. And that's miso, which is a fermented soybean paste. That's doenjang, which is also a different type of a fermented so, so, uh, soy, soybean paste. There's gochujang, and then there's fermented black bean paste. Those four do so many things. Again, I could probably do a show just on those. Um, but one of the things that I've really gotten you know, to do a lot of lately is I make egg drop soup with a miso broth. So then you just take some miso, you add it to some water, or chicken stock, as I usually use. A lot of people use uh, what they call, they call dashi, which is made with uh, uh, bonito flakes. 
which is another thing that could probably be a cheat code. Uh, but you just do chicken stock, and you add miso to it. And you stir it in and dissolve it. And then you have basically a miso soup, right? And then you just take egg, and you, you scramble egg in a bowl, and you just drizzle it in there, and it makes an egg drop soup. And it's fantastic. And then, you know, you add a little bit of a, a little hot sauce or something like that, or a little soy sauce, and fantastic. High protein, low carb, easy, five minutes. But there's a lot of other things you can do with miso. I've, I've started rubbing down meat with miso. And there's a starter for miso and many other products like, like sake called koji. And I haven't really gotten into that yet. And that's supposed to be much better for aging meat. But I have found that when we take, we rub a steak down with miso, we let it sit for a day in the refrigerator, we get a pretty great result. So a lot of things we can do that. Uh, gochujang is Korean fermented chili pepper paste. And, and this stuff, huge flavor, huge depth of flavor. And I talked about doing the, um, the chipotle mayo. We did a gochujang mayo. And we did twice fried Japanese purple sweet potatoes with that. Holy good night, that was good. And so you, we twice fry the sweet potatoes. So what we do, we take the sweet potatoes, and I love to deep fry in a wok. Because you use a, a smaller amount of oil to get the job done. So we cut like big steak fries out of the, the this purple sweet potato. Purple sweet potatoes that I'm talking about have like white to yellow flesh, purple skins. Skin on, fry them till they're almost done, take them off, drain them, let them sit for about 10 minutes, back in they go. Some sort of chemical reaction I don't understand happens and they get puffy and pillowy and crispy. And they, Otherwise, you fry a sweet potato, it's never crisp. Twice fry it. And then just that um, gochujang mayo on the side. Doenjang I just covered recently. Uh, black bean paste adds a whole new layer of flavor. That stuff's good. Just rubbed on chicken before you add chicken to a stir fry. It, it can be that simple. So all of those do wonderful things. Now, moving on, let's talk about some of the hacks here. And I can tell today's going to be a long show, but uh, I missed one last week, so I'm making it up to you. But with these, I'll be able to move a little faster, and i got a bunch of them for you. And remember, there's notes with all this stuff on it on the show notes for today's episode, 2190. So, first of all, how about you're going to cook some rice? Now, there's all these different ways to cook rice. And if you're doing a paella, you got to do it the way you do it with paella, and it ain't going to be right. But if you just need rice, I'll tell you the easiest way to make rice in the world. Put the amount of rice you want to make in, a, in a, a stock pot, bigger than you probably would normally use for rice, for that amount of rice. Cover it with water, swirl it around, and rinse it. Rinse the extra starch off it. Do that twice. Okay. So rinse the extra starch off your rice. Put the pot on the burner, turn the burner on, bring the water to a boil. Use way more water than the instructions say. Boil it like it's freaking pasta. Stir it around. You know, how, you, know how you know when it's done? Take some out on a spoon or a fork and taste it. When it's done the way rice is supposed to be, so you have the perfect consistency that you're looking for in your rice, take it off of the stove, dump it in a, in a strainer, and strain it off. If you're going to use it right away, go ahead and use it. Leave it hot. If you're going to store it for later, rinse it with some cool water, set it in a container. You think I'm kidding? I, I put that tip out when I first started the show. I had so many people tell me, I can't, I can't believe how easy it is to make rice that way. That came from my buddy Neil Franklin. You don't need to steam it. You don't need a cup of water, a cup of rice. You eat this long and the water absorbs it. And it's burned on the bottom or it's overcooked and blah, 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 blah. Cook it like freaking pasta. It's rice. It's not magic. 
If it works for a dried noodle, it works for a dried piece of rice. It works for quinoa. That's how you cook quinoa, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's easy. So the next hack then is now we can infuse that rice with flavor. Remember the curry paste hacks I was talking about? Take some of like your, your green curry, maybe a tablespoon, dissolve that into your water, and then add your rice. It'll have this kind of green thing going on. Very, very nice. You know how you buy cilantro and it comes in a big bunch and you, you cut the top off and all those stems aren't really that nice or good for anything? Save a few of those up. You can put them in the freezer if you want to to make them last longer so they don't get slimy on you. And take like four or five bundles of that. Throw it in your water. Get your water boiling. Add your rice. Cilantro rice. Add some lime zest and lime juice to it. And when that rice cooks, it takes in water. It takes that flavor in with it. Just if you're doing that, cook the ingredient that you're infusing a little bit first. Get that water up nice and hot before you add your rice in. When you're doing this, make sure you stir. Stir your rice around. Add salt. That's the best time to add salt because you get it in the rice instead of on the rice. And anything you can think of you want to flavor rice with, boom. Or color rice with, boom. You want a gorgeous golden rice? Saffron. I mean, just a few strands of saffron in the water. If it colors the water, it's going to color the rice. Now, let's say we take saffron, and it's not on today's list, but I recently reviewed it, the Ross Ahunut seasoning. And we add both of those to our water that we cook our rice in. No one's even going to know what you did. Look, this is fantastic. You want you want it a little better? So we use the Ross Ahunut. We use the saffron. And we cook in chicken stock. Or we make instant chicken stock with our better than bullion chicken base. The, the amount of flavor that you have in something like that is huge. And there's no work. That's why it's a hack. That's why it's cheat codes. Next, if you're going to use bacon to wrap like shrimp or jalapenos or whatever, and you always have a hard time getting it done the way you like, I talked about this yesterday with, with uh, the bacon-wrapped shrimp with the jerk seasoning, par-cook your bacon. If you're going to grill it, just throw your bacon on the grill. I just so if the if the if the uh, grill slats are going horizontally, put the, the the bacon vertically and vice versa. So it's crossing the hatches. Use a pair of tongs. You cook. I cook bacon on the grill all the time. I'll take bacon and rub it down with jalapeno powder and cook it on like jalapeno bacon to go on a burger. Fantastic. Learned that from a place called Al's Hamburgers in Arlington. It's been around since like the fifties or something like that. Um, so that's another thing that you can do there. But if you're going to be wrapping jalapenos. One of the problems with that is, yeah, you can get a nice good wrap with them, but they don't tend to get crispy, or if you do get them crispy, the jalapeno peppers just obliterated. If you like them like that, my wife does because they're less hot, fine, but you're going to wrap shrimp, whatever. Throw the bacon on the grill, cook it about 20%, so we render some of the fat out. As it starts to curl just a little bit and what have you, and it starts to look a little bit differently, get it off, stop. Let it cool down. Now wrap your product with it. Now you've already cooked the bacon 20 to 25%. So now you're going to get a much more crisp bacon product in the end. And you can do that with anything you're wrapping with bacon. If you're doing, you know, we did the pork medallions wrapped in bacon, pig wrapped pig. I didn't do that, but I could have, and it would have, it would have worked out. Then you get that more finished product with your bacon, more crisp. There's other ways to do that, too, we'll talk about in a bit. Next, always do your marinades or your brines in a Ziploc bag. Because you use so much less marinade or brine. So what I'll do is I'll mix up my marinade or my brine, and then I put my meat into a Ziploc bag and put that into a bowl. That way if there's a failure, you have two as one, one as none. 
pour your brine over it, push as much air out of it as you can, zip it up, and massage it into the meat. You know, and, and set it in your bowl. And if you're doing it overnight, you know, maybe a couple times, pull it out, massage it, flip it over to the other side. And you're going to get a really great marinade or brine experience with a lot less. And it's simple. And that's why it's, you know, a hack. Uh, next, uh, if you are making a marinade, and that marinade includes water-based and oil-based liquids... Always add some mustard, even if you don't like mustard, because you're not going to really taste the mustard anyway. And the reason you're going to do that is the mustard is an emulsifier. You can use prepared mustard, or you can use dry ground mustard. And if you use dry ground mustard, you'll have no real come-through of a mustard flavor in the final product. Though I don't think you get much uh, of it anyway. Now, why do we do this? The mustard is an emulsifier. And what the emulsifiers do is they break the tension between water and oil so that they can combine into a mixture and stay there. Now, the reason we want to do this is how can we have a marinade with separated oil and water and get the same marination across all of the product that we're marinating? And the answer is that we can't. Because in the end, the oil floats on top of the water And therefore, it cannot be really part of the flavor party because even when you have it in a zip bag and you put it on top of there and it's all mixed together, what happens very, very quickly, even at a very you know thin layer level, is the oil ends up on the outside and the other part ends up on the inside. So if we add that mustard and we mix them together, then we get a true marination experience where all of the flavors get to come to the party together. The next thing on it then Mix your marinades in a ball jar. That's the easiest way I know to do it. Because you can check to see if you've, you've emulsified it. So you mix up your, your marinade in a pint or a quart, whatever size ball jar you have around. Put the lid on it. Shake the shit out of it. Shake it, shake it, shake it, shake it until it's all incorporated. Set it down on the table. Wait a minute. About a minute and look at it. If it doesn't separate, you've done it. Go ahead and dump it on your food. If it separates, give it another shake. Set it down, see if it, if, it, if it separates again, add a little bit more mustard. And eventually you'll figure out for your marinade, what is the, if you don't like mustard in flavor, what is the minimum amount of mustard that I need to use to get an emulsion? That emulsion allows that marinade to do its job. That little ball jar lets you check before you use it. Because in a bowl and you're mixing it with a fork, you'll never really know. And it saves you from like having to clean your blender. Because you don't want to clean your blender over for, or your Nutri-Ninja or whatever over freaking a marinade. It's not worth it. Having all that oil stuck on it's too much trouble. Ball jar, rinse it with hot water, throw it in the freaking dishwasher. It'll come out sparkling clean. So that's another one. Uh, next, if you are going to be slicing meat, like you're going to be doing like major processing of meat, or you're going to be grinding meat, partially freeze it. Get it as cold as possible. And this would include, like, let's say that you go out and you buy yourself a big old, you know, slab of beef. Like, you can go to Costco, for instance, you can buy a whole rib roast of ribeyes, basically, that's not processed, and pay less per pound for it. You also get a whole bunch of extra fat, even though you like fat on your meat, you can trim that fat, freeze it, and you can use that when you make sausage or hamburger meat out of your venison in the, in the fall. So you got that great fat sitting there. But if you're going to cut those into steaks, let's say you want to make nice, thick, one-and-a-quarter-inch ribeye steaks, 
If you put that meat in the freezer till it's almost frozen, when you cut it, it will cut beautifully. And you'll get nice straight cuts instead of wobbly, scangly cuts where the one side of the steak is nice and thick and the other side's thin. Same thing with grinding meat. If you don't par-freeze your meat before you grind it, you are wrong. I know it sucks when somebody just says you're wrong, but you are. And if you ever grind your meat, even once frozen, and then you grind it without it frozen, you'll never do it without it being frozen again. In fact, with grinders, I recommend that you take the screw of the grinder and the cutting plate and the cutting blades and put them in the freezer too so it's as cold as possible. The other little hack there, it's not in my list, but I'll add it as a bonus. While you're grinding, you can also occasionally throw a handful of ice cubes through your grinder. Now, obviously, put a separate bowl under to catch that to make sure that it's not mixed in with your meat and making your meat too wet, but that will chill everything back down if it starts to warm up on you from friction and keep that good grind going. So freeze your meat before you cut it or grind it. Next one, steam hard-boiled eggs instead of boiling them. One of the most maddening things in the world is peeling eggs. Makes me upset. They even made a little Tupperware thing now. You crack the egg and dump it in the Tupperware thing and close it up and boil it. All you got to do is steam them. Uh, we have an electric steamer, a little two-basket two steamer, so we can do them with that. But just a pot with a, with a steamer basket or a pot with a colander, and I'll talk about that later too with another hack, and steam your eggs for about 12 minutes. That's all you got to do. And your eggs, will the, the shell will fall off. I haven't tried it with quail's eggs yet. I'm going to. I have a feeling, I have no reason to doubt that it would work just as well. But steam your eggs first, spoil them, and then give them a shock, a cold water shock after that. So when they come out, hit them with ice cold water, and it causes kind of a, a separation of that membrane. And once you pop that membrane once, it just peels right off perfectly every time. That, I give a shout-out. I said some of this stuff comes from other people. Some I remember, some I don't. That I definitely learned from Alton Brown. He's one of my favorite food geeks in the world. And uh, I actually have a link to a video of him showing you exactly how to do that in today's show notes. Next one is grilling fruit. Grilling food is just an incredible hack. You want, a, you want a, a great dessert, so get some mascarpone Italian cheese and grill some peaches that are brushed with brandy. And then, you know, take that peach, grill it flesh side down so it's cut in half with the pit out. Lay that down on a plate, put some of that mascarpone cheese on it, and drizzle it with honey. Absolutely freaking unbelievable. You know, and in the spring when your peaches are ripe, that's like a, you know, I wouldn't go do this every day. That's obviously not the best thing for your blood sugar. But having that seasonality, be able to do stuff like that for people, your family, whatever, for yourself, when that fruit is fresh, you can go grab it off the tree, cut it, pop the stone out and do that. Like even, like just now that you know that, let's imagine that you're sitting around, you made, made dinner for your family or for some friends, and you're done, and everybody's, like, happy, but you didn't make any dessert, and you just start thinking, I want to do something a little bit differently, and you look out at that peach tree, and it's laden down with fruit. You go grab a couple, three of them, you make that up. How awesome is that? I talked about it yesterday, but grilling apple, you cut apple in thin, like, I'd say about quarter-inch slices, and you grill that. There's no end to what you can do with that. It has a totally different flavor than when we just have raw apple or apple in an apple pie. It is incredible with bacon. People are applewood bacon, applewood bacon. Make a basically a BLT with bacon and apple and do that chipotle mayo. Give that a shot. It's insane. 
I learned that little trick from a place called Top Golf. About the best thing I ever got out of Top Golf is drinking and eating that daggone sandwich there. They do a bacon apple sandwich. It's fan freaking tastic. But you can take that little hack and do a seared pork chop. And instead of doing like this, like candied apples, apple jelly, apple glaze, just grill some apples and then just serve that alongside a grilled pork chop. Very, very good. So grilling fruit, grill, grilled pineapple is a dessert all by itself. Just take big chunks of pineapple, throw them on the grill, and I mean, people eat that with ice cream and stuff, but just, to me, just that's that's enough all by itself. Um, next, you know, I talked about dehydrated vegetables. If you ever rehydrate vegetables, and you're using them somewhere else, and you, you take them out of the liquid that you rehydrated them in, that liquid is incredibly loaded with flavor, and you should take it and do some other things with it. Basically, look at it like a vegetable stock. So save that, and if like you don't have anything to do with it right away, throw it in an ice cube tray, freeze it. Once they're frozen, pop them out, put it in a Ziploc bag. Now you've got basically a little cube of, of essentially vegetable stock that you can use and add to just about anything that you want to add some more flavor to. Next up, um, salted steaks and salted squash. They're totally different techniques, but they work for the same reason. So kind of an old hack is you can take a really tough piece of meat and you cover it in salt. And, I mean, you do it, it looks like you've ruined it, okay? It looks like you've screwed it up, like nobody would ever want to eat it. The thing is, you, you, you have a certain amount of time the salt stays on there, and you don't want to use fine grain salt. You want to use something like kosher salt. So we coat both sides, basically cover it so you can't see any steak anymore, flip it over and cover the other side and set it somewhere and let it sit. And the, num the magic number is 15 minutes per quarter inch. So a one-inch steak will sit for one hour. An inch and a quarter steak, one hour and 15 minutes, and then we're going to wash all the salt off of it. This starts to break down the muscle fibers, and you're not going to add any more salt with whatever you season it with. There's enough, but it's not going to taste like a salty piece of meat. It's going to have a good salt flavor to it. Remember I talked earlier about the compound butter and the grilled steak and all? We'll do that. Now, this was primarily done with tough cuts of meat like a London broil. And it allows a London broil to be nice and tender. But it also works on pieces of meat that are already damn good, like let's say a porterhouse or a ribeye. Really good for this. You just need to make sure you set a timer and don't let it sit too long. The other thing is, people will tell you that you can do this with any piece of beef. And it doesn't matter how thick it is. You just have to follow the rule of 15 minutes to the inch. These people are not to be trusted. You cannot do this with a quarter-inch thin piece of steak. I would say the minimum thickness of any meat that you do this with needs to be three-quarters of an inch, and I prefer an inch. Um, there's a certain amount of cooking that needs to be done, and if it's too thin, it cooks too fast, that type of thing. This does work well with very thick pork chops, too, by the way. Like, again, an inch thick. It really it does some amazing things to me, and you can look at the meat after this process is finished, before you cook it, and you can see the difference, how it opens up, which means any other flavorings that we add, and again, leave the salt out at this point, are going to get much more into that meat. It comes out juicy, succulent, and tender. Now, salting squash is for making zoodles. So I have a link to where you can see this little uh, julienne peeler that I use to make my zoodles with. I make like an angel hair pasta out of zucchini. Um, and I grow my own zucchini specifically for this reason, because the little zucchinis you buy in the store are not really great for this. 
But you know how those big giant zucchinis that you can't get rid of, that are huge, you could club somebody over the head with them? They're fantastic to make zoodles out of. Because you get a lot of zoodles out of a single squash. And so I grow the you know, squash probably two, three times bigger, and then I make zoodles out of them. And I have a video that shows you how to do that. Uh, but the basic way is you take the, the squash noodles, you put them in a strainer, and you coat them with salt. And it's not a lot of salt. Again, watch the video to get an idea how much. But I don't measure it. I just kind of make sure it gets a little bit everywhere. And then it sets in the colander. And it, if you put a bowl under it, you'll be shocked at how much water comes out of it. And give them a rinse. And then it's squash. It doesn't have to cook very long. Saute it in, let's say, olive oil or butter just till it's warm. And then serve it like a noodle. The, what the salt does is it pulls the moisture out, it changes the texture, and it actually has the texture that's more like a noodle. Now, here's the thing I learned recently. A lot of the grocery stores like Albertsons and what have you now are selling spiralized squash and other vegetables that have been you know, put through a noodle-making-like process. And it's one of those things where you look at it and you look at the price on it, and if you bought enough squash to make it, the squash would cost you more. And it's easy, and we're talking about cheat codes and hacks today. So you can go to the grocery store and buy some spiralized zucchini and yellow squash, and everybody else brings it home and makes a, like a soggy, poor excuse for a noodle out of it. Now that you know to salt it, you get a much better result. I haven't tried it yet, but my good buddy David is a big fan of spaghetti squash. And he said you cut the spaghetti squash in slices, you know, horizontally, so it's like in a circle, round circles. And you salt that the same way, and then you bake it, and it gets a lot more crisp and noodle-like because the same thing, you've pulled the water out of it. Again, I haven't tried that one yet, but I'll have to. And I would imagine just about any vegetable you would spiralize or julienne or whatever, you want to make a noodle-like product out of, that trick is going to make it more noodle-like. It's going to firm the texture up for you. Um, next one is... Um, Salt aging steaks. Now, this one also goes out to Alton Brown. Uh, he made a little thing out of a pie tin and some wooden sticks, uh, and he put salt on both sides of the steak. He put it in the refrigerator and let it age overnight in the refrigerator before cooking it. I have a video where you see the whole process that he did with that. He did a cool way of cooking. It was a porterhouse, and he used a chimney charcoal starter, and he put the steak under the charcoal starter for a couple minutes each side, and then put it over the charcoal starter to finish it. And uh, it worked really well, and it looks really good. The more interesting to me, to me, though, is salting that steak and letting it sit in the refrigerator. What that's going to do is pull moisture out of it, and you're going to get a much better sear, grill marks, etc. Whether you do it the way he did it or not doesn't matter. That salting process works. That's a really easy one to do. Uh, now, I actually recommend a different product for putting your steak on when you salt age it in your refrigerator. I'll save that for another one of my hacks, though. Defrost meat on cast iron cookware. And, yes, it works. I, I looked up a bunch of stuff, and I, I found an article that they said this doesn't work. And there's supposed to be this magic pan that makes your meat defrost faster. And they said they tried it, and it didn't work. I don't know about this magic pan that was made out of aluminum. I do know when I've waited too long to take steaks out, or any kind of meat out that I want to defrost faster, I'll take like one of my cast iron griddles or something like that, sitting up on the stove, especially the stove, because i got a gas stove so it gets more of an air gap underneath it, and I'll lay it flat down, whatever the largest surface area is on that metal. And it will defrost a hell of a lot faster uh, than if it was sitting in a sink or a bowl or something like that. And the reason is the surface area of the meat is making contact with that steel, 
And what it's doing is, it's, and it'll, it'll work with a, any metal pan, but cast iron, thick cast iron seems to work the most. It's pulling the cold out into the metal. It's acting as a heat sink, or actually in this case a cold sink. And so the warmer item is going to take cold from the colder item, and it accelerates the defrosting process. And it also seems you get a much more even defrost when you defrost meat that way. Um, if it's in one of those little, and, and maybe the people that did their little article about cooking hacks that don't work didn't understand this, but if you if you have the, the, the meat and it's frozen, it's one of those styrofoam things that come from the grocery store, and the styrofoam, it won't, it won't work. It's an insulator. you got to put plastic you know, material. There's another thing right there. Like when you bring home stuff that's wrapped in one of those grocery store, you know, styrofoam things, if you're not going to eat it, if you're going to freeze it, get it out of there and put it into a Ziploc bag or a, a vacuum seal bag or something. It'll last longer. That plastic on there has a tendency to get broken and then it freezer burns. And it's just, it's more complicated to defrost. It's, and it's got that stupid diaper thing on it. No, get it out of there. If you bring home steaks, chicken, whatever, and you're going to cook it tomorrow and you're not going to uh, freeze it, get it out of there anyway. Put it on paper towel. Put it on a, a, a something where they can drain moisture away from it or what have you. Meat begins to degrade when it's wrapped in cellophane. It just does. Uh, if it's going to be cold for a day or two in the chill chest, it's better off either butcher wrap paper Or my, my opinion is it's better off not at all. Whatever's around it, it can breathe. People worry about cross-contamination cross with chicken. I don't know. Unless you have your chicken bleeding into your food, I don't think you have much to worry about. But store it in the bottom shelf would be, I guess, my, my advice on any kind of meat like that. Um, but especially steak. Man, steak does not need to be wrapped up in that plastic and sitting on that stupid diaper thing they stick in there. They just, they just get it out of there. It, and it's just amazing how skanky it can get so fast. Uh, next one, use cast iron to start sear or finish sear food on the grill. So a lot of times what I'll do, I'll take a, a cast iron or a uh, carbon steel skillet. Both of those work well. The carbon steel actually will get hotter faster for you because it's thinner. And you set that on the grill off to one side with the burner on underneath it. You do all your cooking. Um, so you just, you know, and if you're going to be using it to start a searing process, get it on there for a while before you cook. If you're going to be using it toward the end for different reasons, uh, you can put it on when you just start heating up the grill normally and go ahead and start your cooking. So this is really a great idea for if you're doing a steak and you want to do a sear, And instead of just searing with the grill marks, you go ahead and hit it on both sides in the cast iron skillet. You get a nice flat sear, and then go ahead and do your hash marks and all your stuff like you normally do. But any kind of bacon wrap thing, um, you know, I'm talking about again that crispy bacon. Just as you're done cooking, hit the both sides of it or what have you in that skillet, and you get that crispness to the bacon. That's a really easy, simple thing to do. Or if you want to cook some vegetables or whatever, you know, once you've done your sear. You know, when you when you get to the point where, like, it's about time for the vegetables to go on to be done, and I want to just throw your vegetables in there, do sautéed mushrooms, what have you, right on your grill. And it's just that heat's there anyway, so you're, you're just capitalizing on that heat. Uh, next, this is also an Alton Brown hack, and I, it's one of those ones, like, I'm like, why didn't I think of that? So if you're doing skewers, what everybody says is what? Soak your skewers in water, and then they won't burn. And the longer they soak, the better. Well, the issue is, and this is why we have boats made out of wood for so long in history, wood floats. 
So you put, you know, a bowl and you stick your skewers in there and they float on the top or what have you and maybe you weight them down with something and how long you do that. What you do is you take an old water bottle, right? Just an empty water bottle. Put your skewers in the water bottle. Fill the water bottle up, put the lid on it, and just keep them stored in there at all times. And whenever you want skewers, they're already pre-soaked. And you've got a very well-soaked, completely immersed skewer. And as soon as you take the lid off, you just shake it around. They, they kind of stick up for you, pull them out. So store your, your skewers in a water bottle. If you're worried about it going bad, okay, put freaking water bottle in the refrigerator if it makes you happy. I'm just, just saying. Uh, next, if you're going to make chicken stock... And you wanted to make sure, like, when you throw that whole core of a chicken in there or a bunch of bones and stuff, that, it, like, when it cooks down and it falls apart, you're not picking through a million little bones to get it out of your stuff. Just take a strainer or a colander, a metal one, and stick it inside your stock pot, like a, almost like a double boiler, except it's permeated so the water can get through both ways. And then throw your chicken in there. And cook it like that, and when you're done, you just lift it out with a with a pair of pot you know pot holders, and let it strain out. And now, if you want to do any bone picking for meat or whatever, but that way, if you throw like a core or two cores of a chicken in there, you don't have like the backbone fall apart. There's a million little bones everywhere. I used to use a product called a soup sock for that, and when I thought about using a strainer, it just seemed like it was a lot more efficient, and it was you know a multi-use item that I had anyway. On that note, I just picked up a new, really big, awesome-looking stockpot and a strainer, and I got them at Ikea when we went there looking for outdoor furniture, which we did not find. And I love the combination of the two. The strainer is tall, and it's upright. It's really a good, rigid, heavy stainless steel. The stockpot has a great, big, thick base, and it's got a really cool shape to it. It's, it's something like... Oh, I don't know. It's 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 some huge amount of quartz. I'll check real quick, I guess, because I'll link in the show notes for it. 15.9 quartz, and it has this kind of flared out shape, kind of cauldron-like, um, so it's got a lot of room in it. And the colander that was sitting right next to it, though not marketed as a pair, though they should have been, fits perfectly in it with the lid on. So as a steamer basket, as a stock maker, what have you, it's just a perfect combination. I picked them both up as soon as I saw them. It's called an umbarodig, I guess in Swedish, uh, style pot. Uh, but I'll tell you, if you take a look at it, you'll see why I like it. It's not cheap, but it's not real expensive either for a really great piece of cookware. It, the, the pot is like $40, bucks, $39.99. That includes the lid. I don't know when people start selling pots without lids and charging you, you know, almost as much for the lid as the pot, but it includes the lid. And the strainer is 9 bucks. Even if you don't want the pot, I would get this strainer. It's the best strainer slash colander I've ever seen. Uh, the the, uh, the Norwegians get certain things right, I guess. Uh, and next, a little hack is whenever you're making chicken stock, throw a lemon in it. You know, you don't have to make zest now because the whole thing's going to go in there. Just cut the lemon in half and whip it in. Uh, it really adds a depth and a flavor to your chicken stock. Um, also, if you're going to cook in an oven, what I recommend you do is get a cooling rack like Baker's Use if you're going to be making certain things in the oven. And I've, I was kind of alluding to this earlier, but like my chicken wings. So you get a stainless steel rack, and then you get a shallow baking pan. And if you're really smart, you line that with foil, okay? And you put that rack there. And whatever you're going to cook in the oven, especially if you're going to do like a convection roast or something like that, 
put it on top of that rack, and that lets air flow all around it. So when you do those wings I was talking about earlier, and I've done chicken wings with the chili oil, I've done chicken wings just with salt and garlic, pepper and paprika, and a little bit of chili powder, however you want to do them, get your, your wings ready to go. Do use some oil on them because it gets a coating of that oil and it holds whatever your dry component is, your dry rub. And that oil, and then the oils that come out of the chicken, it kind of oven fries that way and crisps that skin up. But if you've ever made chicken wings in, in the oven, what ends up happening is the top looks beautiful. And then you, you go in there and the pain in the ass is a bunch of them. You flip them all over. And after you flip them all, the, the bottom all looks like kind of uncooked and unhappy and wet. And then all of a sudden the top looks really good that you just flipped it over. So the bottom looks good now. But the, the other side that looks really good when you flip it back over, it's kind of wet. And you just can't really ever, because it's sitting in its own oils, and you can't ever really get it crisp. Anything that gets that airflow underneath it will work. And to me, the easiest thing is uh, a cooling rack, like for cookies or breads or what have you. And um, I've got a link to the one that I have on Amazon, but you can get these in any grocery store, in the kitchen gadget area, any cooking store, that type of thing. And the only thing you want to make sure of is they're fairly large, so make sure that the pan you get to go with it is large enough for it to fit inside of it. And that has been... One of the best little hacks that we found over the years in making our food even better is getting that air circulation. Next, um, do put some thought into your presentation. I found I started enjoying my food more when I started sharing it on Facebook, so I cared a little bit more about what it looked like. Um, so that you know, I would I would put some like restaurant chef flair into the presentation and how you look and. There's a picture in the show notes today of a salad I made last night. And it's a pretty awesome salad. We went around, we did a little foraging trip around the property. We picked up some lettuces and spinach and chard that was growing in our systems, but we also did some wild foraging. Uh, lamb's quarters are starting to come out now, so I picked a few lamb's quarters. Uh, the uh, wild garlic is coming out, so I picked the little purple flowers off the wild garlic. Uh, some of my nasturtiums are starting to come up, not just in the, the garden, but you know everywhere. So, you know, they're not very big yet, but I pulled, you know, a leaf here, a leaf there, a leaf here, a leaf there. And then we're growing peas. Now, you know, in microgreens worlds, they, they grow, they call them pea tendrils, which are really small pea plants. But the tendril, that little hairy thing that grabs on everything, that's the part. Well, when you're growing pea plants for peas and you're doing a little salad foraging, you just pull the tendrils right off the end of the peas. And they have that, like, that pea flavor kind of in there in the background. So I made this salad and you could have just chopped it all up and thrown it in a bowl and it would have tasted the same really. But I kind of did the lettuce down first and made sure you could see in the little bloody dock that was grown in the aquatic system and I kind of let, so you could see a little bit of everything and then my wife decided we needed some grocery store produce in there so we had some cucumber and green pepper because we don't have any of those being produced yet. We sliced those and laid them in and laid that in there, a little cheese on the top, and, it, and then we had some leftover chicken from the night before that we chopped up and put in there. And I, you know, I took the time to layer it together and to present it as though what you would expect it to look like if you ordered it at a restaurant. And, I mean, you look for the picture yourself. It makes a difference. Think about A lot of this stuff's not hard. And when you, when you see somebody post a picture of their meal in a restaurant, you're like, man, that looks good. It's probably the same type of food you can make at home, but there's colorful vegetables and they're layered in a certain way. And the food, somebody thinks about how that food is presented. 
So I guess it's not really a hack, but it's just like my final piece of advice if you really want to enjoy your food at an elevated level is put some thought into what it looks like on the plate. And with that, you know, I want to finish up with my, my actual final, final piece of advice is in the end, just try stuff. It will often work out. If you think something seems like a good idea, do it. Every once in a while, you'll screw up. I mean, when I first discovered that gochujang paste, my first thought was, I'm going to rub down some meat with this, and I'm going to hot sear it in a cast iron skillet, and that's going to be fantastic. And, and it, it tasted good, but most of it came off because the first thing that happened is the sugars in that paste caramelized, and it turned jet black and cooked crisp and fell off. And well, that's not how to use that. I can mix it with some oil and rub it in the meat, and then now I've got the flavor, and that, then it works. So just because you think something will work doesn't mean it always will, but it's not like it's a huge tragedy. And if you're not sure, make a little bit, and then if you like, like that worked sort of, well, then tweak it. Be fearless. It's just food. It's not like somebody's judging you on it. It's not like you're, you know, it's not like every time you cook something, you're cooking in your first Thanksgiving in front of your mother-in-law. It's just food. Go try stuff. If you think a fried egg on there will be good, fry an egg and throw it on there and see if you like it. If you don't like it, don't do that again. And I know that sounds like rudimentary advice, but I mean, I think there's a lot of people that you talk to them they're like, well, I don't know. Why don't you just try it? If you're not sure, Google it. Look up a recipe. If you look at a recipe and you're like, there's certain things I don't like about that, you know, and then use good techniques. We talked a lot of the hacks there, really techniques. But one I didn't mention, talked a lot about using salt to dry things out. Meat needs to be dry before you cook it. Paper towel is something I should have added there as a cheat code. Lay down some paper towel, put meat on it, press it against it. Then another one, get on the top and get your meat, your fish, whatever, dry before you sear it. And then you'll actually get a sear. Because if it's wet, what you're doing is you're boiling instead of searing, and you're steaming instead of searing. Get things dry. Just simple things like that. They go a long way. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed today's show. I hope it made you hungry. Um, I will say that we don't have an Amazon item of the day because of how many things already have links in this episode, and there's plenty of that, so we'll skip right to the song of the day. The song of the day is by Pink. Not my favorite artist, but I kind of like her. It's called What About Us? And Pink comes from a military family, and you can hear the lining, the lines in there that kind of reference that. Like, when you called, we showed up, but, you know, what ended up happening to us? And I think this song is, it's really a political song, and I'm sure Pink comes at it from the left. And it's too bad. But if she came at it from the right, I'd also say it's too bad. And and because the real enemy is the state itself and the power that government has, and I think if you look at this song, if you're right leaning and you if you if you look at it as being addressed to the left, or if you're left leaning and you look at it as being addressed to the right, it might fit your narrative, but it doesn't really show you the problem. Or if you're you're right leaning and you look at it as 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 aimed at the right, then it's adversarial. But if you listen to the core of this song, the problem is what they've done, and we're the ones that have to deal with it. And, you know, there's a little song I help write that you hear the intro of the show all the time. And there's a line in it that says, nobody up there cares. And, of course, that's talking about Capitol Hill. And I actually see a lot of similarity with that. I I think that government has, has decided that its job is to tell other people how to live. 
Its job is to control people. Its job is to write new laws that tell people what they're supposed to do and what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do. Well, the reality is the only reason that human beings should tolerate government in the first place is the defense of liberty and freedom of the, 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 the tiniest minority in the world. The smallest minority in the world is the individual. Not the black, not the white, not the green, not the yellow, not this religion, not this sexual preference. The smallest minority is the individual person. And every single one of us is different from every other single person out there. Even identical twins have different things that they really want, even though they're genetically the same. A DNA test couldn't tell the two of them apart. They're dramatically different people in the end. And that tells us something, that the individual has dreams. The individual has values. The individual has hopes. The individual has a journey that they wish to take. And the purpose of the state, if there is to be a state at all, should be to preserve the rights of the individual. And then people say, well, that's just one person. No, that's every individual within that, the borders of that state to preserve those rights until such time as that individual infringes upon the rights of another. Indeed, what about us? With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. That we stood up and made the tough choices that needed to be made to preserve our way of life. We are going to the
What about us? 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 What about us?